A big day in Brighton for Keir Starmer. Does he now look like a future Prime Minister? We'll go to the pumps. Is the situation really easing? We'll talk about a furious row with the French, again, this time on fishing. And former Lib Dem MP and Minister Norman Baker joins me for Talking Pints. Now, in many ways, when political leaders get up and speak at party conferences, we're always told it's the biggest and most important speech of their lives. But today, for Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party in Brighton at Labour's conference, given that last year's conference was cancelled due to COVID, this really was a very big moment and it demanded a big speech. Well, what we got was certainly a very long speech, but was it impactful? He'd said before he was less worried about divisions within the party than he was about winning the next general election. And Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor, you were there in Brighton, and uh, he certainly wasn't too worried, was he, about division within the hall? No, indeed, but you're right in saying it was long, 90 minutes. I think that might yeah. be a record in terms of uh, <laughs> length of speeches. I mean, I know he likes his football, but, you know, it doesn't mean you have to play the full, the full game. <laughs> And it was very comprehensive, there's no doubt about that, and he touched on lots of personal issues. But there was one key thing that the Labour leadership team wanted to do this week, Nigel, and that was to try and demonstrate as much as they can that the party has changed, that the Corbyn yep. era is over, and that there is a big, big division about the future of the party under their leadership compared to where Jeremy Corbyn was taking it. And, you know, that's why he referred repeatedly, maybe not by name, but to lots of the new Labour, Tony Blair policies that were a success when Labour were last in government. Now, that is not to say, though, of course, there are people within the party that don't like Keir Starmer. They think that he's mm. reneging on the pledges. We saw, didn't we, kind of elements of that disunity throughout the week in Brighton. And we saw it again, actually, today, with some heckling uh, from people... Have a look at this, though. I think he dealt with it pretty well. And I think in the end, actually, I think they'll be quite pleased, like, something that this happened, because, again, it demonstrates that sense that the party has moved on. Let's have a watch, though. So, so, you see... Shouting slogans or changing lives conference. Thank you, conference. Thank you, conference. These times demand a responsible leader with clear values. I mean, it is entertaining, and it's the rough and tumble of politics, and actually, to be frank... Yeah, but, yeah, but you'd expect that from... Opponents, you yes. don't necessarily well, expect it from. I mean, them. in some ways, it's the best and the worst of the Labour Party in the sense that you know they are, and and, and this is a proper decision-making body within the Labour Party, mm. and people you would never see this at a Conservative Party conference, uh, and, and so. Uh, but I think when you look at it, he dealt with it well. It was a good retort, obviously, almost certainly pre-rehearsed, yeah. but but a good retort, and then you had that kind of juxtaposition, didn't you, when someone's in heckling and then he got a standing ovation. Again, a sense that actually most of the party are still behind And him. the Peter Mandelson chant, that obviously is someone saying you're taking it back to the days of Blair and New Labour. Indeed, but I, I think, frankly, actually, the leadership again That's what <laughs> won't be very upset about that. I did see Peter Mandelson was physically at the conference yeah. as well. Um, and so, as you say, this was his first speech to an actual conference uh, since he got elected, obviously. Um, he delivered it pretty well. It was too long, though. 
and there was lots and lots of policy announcements in there that just got swallowed up because it went on and on and on. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, speaking to the leadership team, they're pretty chipper at the, at the end of the day. They think today's gone pretty well for them. Uh, in saying that, as I say, they did touch on a whole range of other things, not least of all this idea about taxation. Because, as you know, Nigel, with Labour governments and parties, there's a constant need to demonstrate that they're going to be fiscally prudent and they're not going to waste taxpayers' money. And in some ways, actually, you know, our politics is in a weird kind of through-the-looking mirror kind of moment when you've got a Conservative government increasing taxes... Yep. And you've got a Labour opposition claiming that they're not going to spend that money very well at all. And I think this is going to be a running theme, actually, because, you know, you, I, everyone else is going to notice a real squeeze next year with the movement on the income tax thresholds yeah. and the national insurance hike. People are have less money in their pocket. And I think Labour actually has seen an opportunity where they can hammer the government about, well, what are the results? What are, are you actually making improvements with the money that people have in their pockets. So let's have a listen to what Kirstama had to say about taxation specifically. The balance between smaller and larger businesses should be fair. And we will chase down every penny to ensure that people, working people paying their taxes, always get value for money. Different direction. Yeah, different direction. Uh, well, again, a demonstration, you know, that, that this is a party that, you know, is trying to set out a policy platform to win back those millions of voters that, you know, you think you, you kind of... That, that they would argue they've lost. I mean, Labour got hammered in the last election with the magic money tree. This is, again, trying to move away from that. And the other really significant moment, I thought, and there were lots of them, but the other one was on Brexit. Now, we know Keir Starmer, obviously, was a hardened Remainer, wanted a second referendum on this issue. Many people feel he should needs to apologise, essentially, for trying to obstruct the results of the first uh, referendum. Yes, I'm one of those. Uh, you may well be. And, and, and he's not going to do that, frankly. He will make a political argument that, you know, at the time he thought it was necessary. But there was a sense that he was trying to say, we've moved on today. And he's come up with this kind of new kind of catchphrase. Um, and it, it's about, again, sending that signal out that when it comes to Brexit... Uh, that the party have accepted the reality is, which is that Brexit is here, yeah. and that any future Prime Minister has to make a success of that. Let's listen. A botched Brexit, followed by Covid, has left a big hole. The government is learning that it's not enough to get Brexit done. You need a plan to make Brexit work. I do see a way forward after Brexit. If we invest in our people and our places, if we deploy our technology cleverly, and if we build the affordable homes we so desperately need. But the public finances we inherit will need serious repair work. I take the responsibility of spending your money very seriously. So they go, make Brexit work. Yeah. Now the new... Uh, three words slogan, quite effective actually in many ways, uh, I think politically for Labour uh, to, to, to latch on to that. In the end, though, as I say, I think it's not been an ideal week for Labour. You know, we had a shadow cabinet resignation, definitely elements. I don't think Angela Rayner's comments you know, were helpful in the sense they distracted from the conference, irrespective of what you think of them. So, you know, there were bits around the edges, but on the whole, I think Kirsten would be pretty happy. I think the leadership team were pretty happy. They got some significant rule changes true. 
uh, which means it's actually more difficult to, for someone from the left to become leader in the future. That was a key moment. Yeah. And I, I think we'll see how this plays out, but, you know, most people won't have watched the speech, they'll just get the edited highlights. Uh, and I think the reaction, you know, from the commentariat, however much that matters, has been quite positive as uh, well. But be in no doubt, I mean, this does not also mean that Labour are any closer to power. You know, you and I have talked about this before. They have got such an appointment. It's a mountain, isn't it? It's, it I mean, we, we are looking at an 80-seat majority. Mm. We're looking at, if Labour were to win the next election, they'd need a... Bigger swing than we've seen since 1945. Bigger than Blair achieved in 97. It is very, 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 very difficult. But, but, I think Labour, as I say, tried to go to this week to demonstrate that they've moved on from the Corbyn wing, the left wing of the party. Have they succeeded in doing that? I think they probably have. Darren, thank you, and great coverage. And it was the first big mm. outside broadcast that GB News has done. No technical problems. No technical there problems. There you are. And, and actually, uh, I have to say, lots of warm words about us, even at Labour Party conference as well. And we'll be up in Manchester, of course, from Sunday. Absolutely. Darren, thank you very much. So I guess in some ways it was a fairly assured performance from uh, Starmer. You know, I mean, look, he's a barrister. He's used to uh, performing in public. And yet, all right, he said Labour is not any longer the party of the hard left. They've accepted Brexit. They now want to make the most of it. They're trying to show they're fiscally responsible by saying the money's got to be spent properly. So, in many ways, in terms of party management, he's done well. But does he look like a future Prime Minister? Well, my view is he just does not have the charisma to carry this off. The mountain is just too big, it's just too great. But if the Labour Party can begin to provide a bit more coherent opposition to Boris Johnson with his big majority, that would be a very good thing for democracy in this country. So I don't think he really looks like a future Prime Minister, but tell me, what do you think? Please let me know, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Now, it's a familiar theme. It's rows about fishing. And they've been going on in many ways ever since we joined the common market back in the 1970s. And that's because the cost of us joining the common market was to give away proper control of our own territorial waters. Some will tell you, oh, fishing doesn't matter, Nigel. It's only a small part of our GDP. Well, one of the reasons it's so small is because it's been decimated over the course of the last half a century by the common fisheries policy. And it may be a small percentage of GDP, but it matters to many of our coastal communities Hugely. But the French are very tough on this. The Brexit deal on fishing was weak in the extreme. And let's see what Michel Barnier, who of course is now running to be French president, let's see what Barnier had to say about fishing wars today. Still not understand the reason of the Brexit. <laughs> and to be frank, uh, to be frank, I... I, I Listen carefully, everybody in the UK, huh? including Mr. Farage. Meeting, I asked him, uh, Mr. Farage, uh, now the Brexit is there, almost there. You, you, we are going to finalise the, the, the treaty. Uh, so you have, you want, okay? Uh, can you tell me how do you see the future relation between EU and UK? It was a simple question, huh? Uh, and his answer was very clear and immediate. Mr. Barnier, after the Brexit, the EU will no longer exist. 
This guy wants to destroy the EU. This, this point is important. We, are, we expect the same responsibility of the UK to, to respect its, sign, its signature. And this point is not a minor one. Huh? Please. Uh, this, this point is politically important to have the base of trust and confidence for everything else. Well, good old Michel Barnier. He just has to have a bit of a pop at me, doesn't he? Um, but the real answer was, on fishing, Monsieur Barnier, I want to get most of the French boats out of British waters, firstly, to give our industry a chance to recover, and secondly, uh, because we are damaging the ecology of the English Channel in a very, very bad way. And indeed, since Brexit, the situation has got worse. Now, the deal that Boris Johnson signed up to was good in some ways, but very bad for Northern Ireland, very bad for fishing. Uh, and here it is. We are actually allowing 1,700 EU boats to fish in British territorial waters. The row today is about the number of relatively small boats that can fish up to six miles from British beaches. The French asked for a large number, We've granted them a lower number. Most of those French boats that applied have never fished inside British waters, the tiddlers, but they're doing it because if they get a licence to fish in British waters, those boats are worth more. So we've given away a huge amount, and yet, because the French haven't got everything they want, they are now threatening us, and they're coming out with extraordinary comments. I mean, France's Europe minister today said it's a declaration of war on the water and on the land. They're evening threatening Jersey. And you'll remember, earlier on this year, there was a French fisherman's blockade of Jersey, and Jersey stood firm, and indeed, a couple of Royal Naval vessels did make their way towards the Channel Islands. They're now threatening Jersey with cutting off their electricity supply. But this is important because we have an ongoing row with the French, not just over this, but, of course, over the Northern Ireland Protocol which, if it's not changed, means a part of our own nation has effectively been annexed. So what next to do politically? Well, I'm pleased to say that I'm joined now by Sir John Redwood. Sir John, good evening. Welcome back to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. We've been remarkably generous. I mean, in my opinion, way too generous to the French and other European fleets, and yet they respond with threats. What on earth should we do, Sir John, in the face of this? Well, we've clearly got to um, stand up for Britain and change the arrangement, haven't we, Nigel? I was one of only two Conservative MPs who wasn't able to vote for the final agreement. And I made a speech at the time saying that I thought the fishing arrangements were unsatisfactory. I don't welcome another five years of so-called transition where the EU can plunder our waters on, on the scale they're currently doing. And I was very unhappy about the Northern Ireland arrangements because, as I feared, the EU has exploited the protocol interpreted it in a very one-sided way and is making life extremely difficult in Northern Ireland. So we need to change both things. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, I think, is easier to change than uh, many people in Britain believe. It does, however, require political will. But my advice to the government is that we should say that, as from next week, uh, we supervise all GB to Northern Ireland trade. Uh, the EU will keep out of it. There is a clear statement in the protocol that they should not use it to divert trade. They are clearly using it to divert trade. And we will make a promise and maybe legislate in Britain 
uh, that we, of course, won't allow the trade to move on into the Republic and into the EU against their rules, because the bulk of the trade was always GB to Northern Ireland. And the items didn't go on to the Republic. And um, why should they intervene in our internal trade? And on the fish, I'm very pleased the government has turned down some of the French license applications. I would immediately ban the big industrial boats of over 100 metres. They're all foreign owned. I think they're doing enormous damage. And on environmental grounds alone, I would simply ban the 100 metre plus boats to start to give some relief to our fish and our fishing industry. Well, look, I agree with that. And the factory boats are doing great damage. And there's certainly a lot of evidence that fish stocks in the English Channel since Brexit have taken a real serious hammering. I've seen some of that at first hand. But we've still allowed 1,700 EU boats to fish inside our waters. But is there any political pressure on the Prime Minister to do anything about this? Or can he just brush it aside? Well, I think there's some political pressure, and I and others are making this point to him from inside his own party, and I suspect you'll hear more of that next week at the party conference. I think a lot of our members feel very bad about the state of the British in industry. I think many of us voted for Brexit for a variety of reasons, including being kinder to our fish and rebuilding our domestic industry. We thought we were going to get a double win. We thought we could have a fishing policy which did less damage to the fishing grounds, took less fish in total, but had a much bigger British industry, which was what we wanted and what we used to have before we joined the EEC and the EU. I mean, it's a disgrace, isn't it, that we have this potentially very rich fishing ground, and yet, thanks to the common fishing policy, we are a net importer of fish, and we allow all these other countries to come in and lift most of our great resource. It's unbelievable. Please, John Redwood, keep the pressure on because our coastal communities want it and need it and you know what they deserve it as well so please do keep on that pressure right right well we want to rebuild our industries after brexit because of course the whole single market episode took away many of our opportunities to make things and grow things for ourselves and we we became import dependent in so many areas. Why are we import dependent for electricity? We always used to generate all our own electricity. <laughs> uh, why are we so import dependent for temperate food? We used to grow most of our own food. We had to during the war for obvious reasons. Well, maybe. And we allowed these rules and these interferences by the EU to stop us making and growing our own things. It was so maybe, maybe Keir Starmer. Maybe Keir Starmer's right when he says make Brexit work. Well, he, I'm glad he's a, a late convert to the cause, because as you <laughs> rightly say, he didn't understand democracy during that dreadful previous <laughs> no, parliament he did when not. he and his colleagues trying to thwart the will of the British I people. Know. But I, I do know. think he has got this point, and I think I'm very pleased if we now have an opposition which is going to help me press the British government to get more things made and grown in Britain as we should do to create more better-paid jobs here. Surely that's what a Labour opposition should be yeah, saying. Well, and if he's going to say that now, then I'm all in favour of it, because I've been saying it for a good long time. Thank you, John. Thank you very much indeed. Well, let's go to the coast. Let's go to somebody who is intimately involved in our coastal communities, in the fishing industry. It's June Mummery, a former MEP colleague of mine from the east of England. And, June, I know a remarkable thing happened last week, where, of all the things... Members of the fishing industry and Greenpeace actually yes. got to actually got to never happened before. But this is no. because this is because just explain. I mean, I, I, I know this, but our fish stocks are being hammered, aren't they? 
Well, yes, obviously we had the electric pulse fishing off the East Coast and we now have fly shooters, Dutch, Dutch fly shooters in the channel. And these boats are aggressive and they catch, they come in and they sweep mounds of fish away. And our government is doing nothing about it. 18 months. I've been telling them with other fishermen how bad things are and they've ignored us. Greenpeace have come along and want to support us with fly, with the Dutch fly shooters and super trawlers. I mean, the, the, that barbaric method, method of fishing as well. So we joined up to have a demo in um, outside Parliament um, where afterwards we met with MPs. And let's be mindful, there is 186 coastal MPs and unfortunately just two turned up. No ministers turned up. And Nigel, yes, you know, our stocks of fish are declining. And if we're not careful, we could have the similar thing to the Grand Bank situation in Canada with big, huge vessels overfish their cod stocks. And once you lose fish, they don't come back. It's not what you catch, it's what you kill. The biodiversity, all those little creatures that we can't see. You know, I often say to people, if I was to go into Thetford Forest and chop all those uh, trees down, you can see that. But none of us can see the damage that is being done in our ocean. No, so we've got the ecological disaster. And, I, and as a yes. keen angler, as a keen angler, I've seen that at first hand over the course of the last couple of years. I really have. But what about the industry? I mean, is the industry... Because the industry was very hopeful, wasn't it, that Brexit was going to be this renaissance for mm. British fishing. And I know they felt betrayed by the deal. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what is the situation? Are, are boats still giving up the ghost and packing up? What is the position right now with our coastal community the, fishing industries? Well, the, the, the position at the moment is just sort of hanging in there again. You know, I've got fishermen that can't afford to feed their families. And when you have these big fly shooters coming in from the Dutch, well, you know, when you've got the French knocking at the door for more to come into the six to 12, it's just putting a big strain on our coastal um, fishermen. So the, we were completely sold out. And like John just said, after, you know, after Brexit, this should have happened. But even after five years, we still will be tied to tariffs, aviation, and energy. The deal that our Prime Minister struck with the EU is diabolical. The negotiating team that he took with him, which is our civil servants, are not fit for purpose. They have let our Prime Minister down badly. Well, June, all I can say to you is you're a great champion of these coastal communities. It really matters to them. And please keep up the pressure. And if I can help in any way, uh, in this battle over the course of the next couple of years. I will, and thank you thank for coming you. on thank and you. joining us here on GB News. So we're told by the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy that the petrol crisis is easing, that things are better. All I can say is some of the queues I saw this morning, maybe there are more deliveries arising, arriving at stations, but it still seems to be pretty tough to me. In a moment, we'll analyse to what extent is this crisis really easing. I'm asking you.
does Keir Starmer, after his speech in Brighton today, look like a future Prime Minister? And OK, he's not had a bad week. I just don't think he's got the charisma to carry it off to climb that enormous electoral mountain. Let's see what you say. Peter says, Keir Starmer has no chance of becoming Prime Minister until the Labour Party leaves the EU. Well, he was trying to do that today, wasn't he? He was trying to say, we've moved on, we want to make Brexit work better. Uh, but I was told lots of delegates were there in Brighton, still with EU flags and EU badges on their lapels. I'm not sure the party has yet got over its period of mourning. John, on email, says, I've never voted for Labour, but after Starmer's speech, he is what we needed after years of the useless Tories. There we are. Somebody there is convinced. Irving says, Keir Starmer as Prime Minister, question mark. He is a backstabber. How can we trust a backstabber? Well, there's plenty of those in politics, believe you me. Now, look, we've been talking a lot about the Labour Party conference, about the big speech down in Brighton today, but I am aware that is not number one on the list of most families in this country because most people are worried about fuel. As I said before the break, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy are telling us that things are easing. Indeed, the Petrol Retailers Association tell us things are easing. And I suppose in some ways we're being told these things because they want to stop the outright panic. But from what I can see, things are still pretty tough out there. Well, joining me now to analyse this, I'm pleased to welcome back Brian Madison, chairman of the Petrol Retailers Association. And your association, I think you cover just over 60%, don't you, of the petrol stations? Yeah, about, uh, in... 65%, yeah. I apologise for underselling you. 65%. So, you're all telling us it's easing because you want us not to panic and not to fill up. But isn't the truth of it that in many parts of the country, it's still very tough to get fuel. Stations are either closed or the queues are simply enormous. Yes, it is something of a postcode lottery, but I am heartened by the poll we took this morning of around 1,500 of our members right across mainland UK, which uh, told me that the number of sites without fuel had reduced from yesterday's 37% down to 27% today. And in addition to the poll, I got a lot of comments from our members, many of whom I know personally, saying, Brian, we think it is easing and we are getting more deliveries. Now that is straight from the front line, from the trenches. And so I've got to believe that there is uh, a balancing starting to happen, uh, although from pockets. I mean, we had a retailer speak to me this morning. He had one site, which normally does 15,000 litres a day, doing 65,000 litres. That's an absolute tsunami of demand. And, of course, he then has to apply to his oil company to get more tankers. They say, we've only scheduled you one, and he wants two. So, yes, there are lots of strains and pressures. But hopefully, we do see the possibility of some rebalancing. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I'd said to you a week, if I said to you a week ago that 27% of uh, your member stations would have no fuel at all, you wouldn't have believed me. So it's still a pretty serious situation, even if it's not quite as chronic as it was yesterday. And in terms of deliveries, is this deliveries back to where they normally are, or are deliveries even higher 
than normal to catch up with the backlog. The deliveries are even higher. The oil companies are working harder. The drivers are working harder. Uh, some of them find it actually quite difficult now to get into some of the fuel stations uh, because of the queuing. But we do think that what the government is trying to do with the military drivers uh, should help. It's not absolutely the single lever that's going to uh, get rid of this um, uh, problem with uh, the excess demand, uh, but it is going to help. And they're talking about uh, between 75 and 150 drivers and tankers uh, coming on to stream fairly quickly, perhaps even as soon as this weekend. And then there are the oh, other levers on, that they're Come on, that's just political gesturing, isn't it? You know, the government ascending in the army, isn't it marvellous? Let's all give the government a round of applause. And I'm quite sure 150 army drivers helps, but given there are, given there are 8,500 stations around the country, I mean, it's pretty marginal stuff, really, isn't it? Every little lever helps, Nigel. And so we're not talking about one big lever. The one big lever, clearly, is Joe Public. You and me, motorists and... What are we doing every time we go to the filling station, cramming the last drop into our tanks? Well, that just mathematically doesn't work because 2 billion litres of stock on the roads in the garage versus 400 million litres underground at forecourts, that is a stress which is never going to win for the forecourts. So we just do need more fuel getting and a calming down of the buying process. And certainly, my car has been in the garage now for about six days. So I've got about half a tank of petrol, and uh, long may it remain so, because I'm not going anywhere soon. Well, lucky you, Brian, because my car is very, very low. <laughs> so I'm going to be going out on Friday morning trying to find somewhere, um, and I hope I succeed. And one of the slightly uglier sides of this, uh, and we've seen... We punch-ups, you know, between people queuing up. But I understand that quite a lot of people who are working in these petrol stations have been taking a fair bit of abuse. Yes, uh, and, and this is really unfortunate because the cashiers are only trying their best to provide a service. They're trying to marshal the traffic as best they can, and yet there are all of these uh, tensions between those queuing and not queuing. One thing I would say to our members, if they're listening, and that is if you've only got petrol, for heaven's sake, go into the queue and tell people you've only got petrol, because there may be some there who are wanting diesel, and they're obviously going to be hugely frustrated if they've waited half an hour, an hour for diesel, and all you've got is petrol. So. There can be some things which the retailers can do. I'd recommend them to, to try and go and speak to people in the queue and just uh, see what help they can provide. And what we're trying to do is pro always provide a service. And this kind of uh, really uh, violently uh, bad behavior has no place. So please calm down. Absolutely. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. That was Brian Madison from the Petrol Retailers Association. And, you know, if you think about the numbers that he described there, you know, you've got two billion litres worth of capacity sitting uh, on front drives and in garages and on streets as against 400 uh, million litres at any time in the pumps. You can see that if people constantly 
want to keep their tanks full, uh, then this could go on and on and on. And I suspect it'll go on for a little bit. But let's hope that those reassuring words are right. So the idiots are at it again. Can you believe it? Today, Junction 3 of the M25 and 27 people at that Swanley roundabout have been arrested. Yeah, once again, once again, it's just awful. We've had paramedics shouting at protesters, trying to get them out of the way. Horrible, ugly scenes. Uh, and there they are, gluing themselves to the road. But here's the bit that makes me mad. Not just that they're inconveniencing people, not just that they're costing people money, not just that they're making people miss funerals, weddings, flights. What really annoys me is these people, and we were told there was an injunction last week, the government had put something in place that would deal with all of this, but all that's happening is they're being picked up, perhaps detained for 24 hours, and then released again. And unfortunately, one or two of these people have now been arrested five times in ten days. That's right, some of these hardliners have been arrested five times in ten days. And I am just sick of the government, of the Home Office, talking tough on these issues and yet not delivering. Now, joining me on Talking Pines is a former Minister of State at that very Home Office. He's very much a political nonconformist, a former Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament. I'll be joined by Norman Baker. Joining me today on Talking Pints is former Liberal Democrat Minister, in fact, Home Office Minister, Norman Baker. Norman, welcome. Good evening to, to you, Nigel. Talking nice Pints. to see you. I'm very good to see you. Now, I have, a, I have a glass of water here because I always take the view that you shouldn't drink before you go on air because I might um, say something I shouldn't. However, but you've been doing that for years anyway. <laughs> However, I've brought you an excellent pint of Harvey's Old Ale from the brewery in Lewis. And as you know, Harvey's is a fantastic brewery. It really is, and I'm very grateful. Thank you very much indeed. The last person that bought drinks in was Jacob Rees-Mogg, and it was his homemade cider. It was um, mm, interesting. I can guarantee it's better than I, that. I, I'm going to be very happy there. I know <laughs> I am. Thank you. Well, of course, let's start there, shall we, with Lewis? Because Liberal members of Parliament anywhere in the east of England, there was Clement Freud, pretty much on his own in Cambridgeshire for yes. years, and yet you won this seat in Lewis all the way back, and you held it for, what, 17 18 years? years? 18 years. Yeah. 18 years as a Lib Dem member in Sussex. That was amazing, wasn't it, being an MP for that amount of time for that party? Well, the average length of time for an MP, I think, is seven and a half years. Yep. And, uh, and for a Liberal? Probably less. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was the first non-Tory since 1874. Yep. And there's obviously been Tories subsequent to me, so I'm, I'm the exception that proves the rule or something. Um, it's a fantastic seat, Lewis. I love it deeply. It's a great place. Lewis is a very quirky, independent, bolshy town. Sort yeah. of place you would like, Nigel, of Yeah, course. no, and they have their bonfire parades and they all do. the things they do. And Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And lovely countryside, uh, National Park, Glyndebourne, everything else down there. It's and New Haven, place. of course, a working port, an efficient yeah, port. Yeah, a very honest place, very yeah. honest place. And yeah. I, liked, I liked it very much indeed. No, it's, well, a it's, I mean, it's a long time to do it. And you did go on to the Home Office as a minister. And, and I've just been, before you came on air... We've just been talking about the fact that these M25 protests, which, yeah. you know, it's, it's costing people money, uh, people are missing flights, missing funerals, all the rest of it. But what absolutely drives me mad 
is the government, the Home Office, keep talking tough. Some of these protesters that were arrested today, it's the fifth time in ten days. Yeah. What should we do? It's very difficult. I mean, first of all, let me say I don't agree with those protests at all. And I think anyone who wants to convince the public of their case should do so in a way that doesn't disrupt the general public. And they should do so in a humorous way that wins support and makes people laugh. That's, that's how you win your case, mm. not by stopping people in the 25. It's difficult to know. I mean, they've passed laws to, to uh, make it possible. Well, they've got a court judgment to, to make it yeah. possible they're, they're incarcerated. For 24 hours. For 24 hours. But, I mean, there's no... There's no Disincentive. I mean, to be honest with you, if people are that motivated as these people are, I think, mm -hmm. they would welcome the fact to be locked up. They, they would see that as a badge of honour. Well, I don't mind locking them up. No, I'm sure you don't. Uh, no, <laughs> but, no, well, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the public would agree with me. Well, I'm sure they would, Nigel, but the point, the point is that they wouldn't mind being locked up. They would see it as a, right, as a victory. Well, 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 if that's what they want, let's give it to them. <laughs> now, Norman, I have to say, it's very interesting. Uh, I would call you a non-conformist. Almost. Or a maverick, I'm normally called. Well, you're certainly that, but you're a non-conformist, and perhaps in the old-fashioned sense of the word, but almost verging on Puritan, aren't you, really? I mean, you, you disapprove deeply of the royal family. You seem to be quite sceptical of people who've got too much money. Um, you, I, yeah. That's not what, true, actually. What is it that you want us to be as, I, a, I want... as a people? I mean, I mean clearly... You know, when you talk about corruption, and you've yes. had lots of campaigns, and many of them admirable campaigns, but it does seem to be a very, very sort of hair shirt. Well, maybe it's my Church of Scotland upbringing as a must... young lad. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm not against the royal family if they pay their taxes properly and if they follow the same rules as everybody else follows. I'm not against the Benelux monarchies, which, when, they, when the king or queen comes to the throne, mm -hmm. they take an oath to uphold democracy. In this country, alone... We take an oath, we take an oath when we have to do anything to respect the Queen. That's the other way around in other countries. Well, it has given us very stable governments since, since 1688. It's, well, it's uh, been pretty effective compared to the rest of Europe, hasn't it? Well, I don't think that's necessarily to do with the, the royal family. But in, in, but in any case, I'm not against rich people. I'm against people who don't pay their taxes, which is a different matter entirely. Um, so it's just a bit hair shot, I suppose. I mean, I was the MP, if you recall, who um, opened the can of worms on MPs' expenses mm. uh, with the first Freedom of Information request. Mm. I remember that, and I remember thinking, I bet Norman Baker is about as popular in Parliament as I, <laughs> as I am in the European yes, Parliament. That's, that's I mean. a fair comparison, actually. And it didn't help that I called for MPs to pay for their car parking charges, which are free in the House of Commons. Went over the road in Abingdon Gardens, Abingdon Green. It was then about £20 a day, probably a lot more than that now. You know, why should people who are on, on huge salaries get free parking at work? No, no, look, I know that you, did, that you fought all of these campaigns and, and, and I know that many of your parliamentary colleagues would have shunned you and probably quite a lot within the Liberal Democrats would have shunned you. But you were there during a period, you know, we were coming out of the end of the Paddy Ashdown period yes. of, of very effective leadership of the Liberal Democrats and Ashdown, you know, with energy toured around the country and gave these speeches. Yeah. And, and I watched him and I thought, wow, you know, this guy's really good at this, yeah. really good at this. Charlie Kennedy, who... I have to say, was the politest of men, you know, charming, delightful. But again, somebody I disagreed with, but could have a sensible, grown-up, civilized conversation with, and sadly, that all ended very tra as his life ended very tragically. Uh, and you go on to Nick Clegg, and suddenly, you know, you've gone from being this tiny little party, and you've got sixty. Was it sixty-five? The most sixty-two, I think, at the most. Yeah, 62 I mean, you know, you're right? over sixty seats in Parliament. Yeah. You're into a coalition government. Yeah. What went wrong? What went wrong was that. Um, we tried to play the game properly. We tried to play it as a fair partners to the Conservatives, as they did, by and large, actually, to us. Um, but whenever anything went wrong, 
we got the blame. And people remember, what do they remember about it? They remember tuition fees, which was a disaster on our part. But they don't remember uh, the things we did, the triple lock pension, uh, the reduction in income tax for those on, on low incomes, the free school meals, the massive investment in the railways. They were all our campaigns, the things we did. But Nick Clegg broke a very specific promise that was made to he did. people. He did, he did. But, I mean, that was a lightning rod, Nigel. Had it not been that, it would have been something else, I think. You know, on day one, near enough day one, we had a meeting with our um, uh, European partners from, from Holland, um, and they came across and said, look, you're the junior partner in, partner in this... Uh, coalition, you will get the blame for things. That's the way coalitions work. I think it's the same elsewhere. I don't think we're unique in that. But, you know, I said to people at the time, give us a break. We've been out of government for 90 years. You know, <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't got the same experience as the Tories have got. And actually, we've got quite a lot right. And I, I, would, I would say to people, look back at that government between 2010 and 2015. It's a pretty good government, pretty stable. We inherited that situation from, from the Labour yep. with the financial mess. It was a pretty stable government. And you look at what's happened since 2015, I would say that actually we've produced a much better government because we had to convince the Conservatives of what we wanted to do and they had to convince us. And that's no bad thing, convincing somebody outside your own ranks. No, look, I mean, the argument that coalitions don't work, I mean, much of post-war Germany has operated exactly. coalitions. And, and we designed and, it. And, and pretty effectively, you know. But, Norman, two big things have happened since then. One is a complete collapse of support for the Liberal Democrats. Are they relevant right now? Well, I'm not an active Lib Dem. I'm still a Lib Dem, but I'm not active. You're still a member, are you? Of course. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'll always be a Liberal in my, throughout my life because yeah. that's very important. The issue of the balance of the power between the state and the individ individual, which you will understand very well... I do, and I wonder... What, absolutely key. So liberal, why are the Liberals so illiberal? Why well, are the Liberal uh, Democrats so illiberal? Well, they, I, mean, I mean, they say they want to ban things and stop things and tax things. It's not a very Liberal party, is it? Well, in some cases it's not, but, I mean, in many other cases it is. I mean, we were very keen to another thing we did in coalition was get rid of ID cards, which, of course, Labour wanted to introduce at the end of their period. And we said, no, we're not having ID cards. You know, I don't want to state... But you've following... supported all sorts of bans on different things. Well, I mean, who personally are you talking about the party? No, the party. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm not here to answer for the party. I'm here to answer for myself these days. Uh, I, you know, I'm not in favour, by and large, of banning things. Uh, banning things is, is, an, is a... Sometimes you have to do it because you have to ban dangerous pesticides, for example, because they're in, injurious to health. There are cases when you, have to, when you do have to ban things, but by and large, I'm much more in favour of convincing people to do the right thing. And I'm in favour of using the economy to achieve the right results. I think if you tax bad things and reduce tax on good things, then you nudge people in the right direction. But they can still do what they want to do, which is... A, which is um... And how can, Norman, how can a classical liberal, somebody that believes, I'm a sort of Joe Grimmond type philosophy, someone that believes properly in democracy and accountability and all of these things. It's, it's a miracle to me that anybody that calls himself a Liberal could ever have supported the European Union, could ever have supported <laughs> that monstrous, monstrous undemocratic structure. And yet the Liberal Democrats have been the fanatics for the European Union, fanatics for us joining the I Euro. I don't think fanatics are a fair word. I mean, I think there was a lot well, of... Well, I, let me assure you, you know, I worked alongside Nick Clegg and others uh, in the European Parliament when he was there. Um, you, know, you have been the party that believed in the project. Yes. Uh, and maybe that's done you damage as well in terms well, of... Well, I don't know. I mean, we believe... People like me, and I'm not alone in this, believed that it was important to be in the European Union, but it didn't stop us being highly critical of elements of it. Of, of the fact that the accounts weren't signed off properly, mm. of the common agricultural policy. You know these issues, Nigel, probably better than I do. Mm. There was lots wrong with it, but we happen to think, I think I still do, and I think we've been proven right subsequently, actually, we're better off in 
than out. Um, which isn't to say it was perfect, it wasn't. Indeed, if you look at my predecessor in Lewis, Tim Rathbone, yep. who was highly uh, pro-Europe, um, when I took over the seats, the only seat in the country which went from Tory to Live Devon became more Eurosceptic. Euro <laughs> <laughs> but wasn't it... I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to put this to you, and I put it to, indeed, to Vince Cable a month or two back when he was sitting in that yeah. chair. We had a referendum, right? A national referendum. There was a very clear result. Well, well, it was, it well, was a very big margin. A very, a very big margin. Yeah. 1.4 million vote margin in favour of leaving. And yet your party and many others put us through three and a half years of torment, of agony, uh, attempting basically to overturn the result. Well, I don't know that's entirely fair. They I mean, want, but they wanted us to vote again. You wanted us to vote again, didn't you? Uh, well, personally, I think it was important to try to... Come up with uh, given a narrow mark, you said one point something million. Massive mark. It was four percent. It was a great big mark. It was fifty two forty eight, so, which is so quite do you, close. Do you, do you, I mean, but, do you not accept democratic results, Norman? Yes, uh, but I'm also aware that um, uh, sometime before, if I may say so, uh, you said that it was fifty two forty eight the other way. You wouldn't accept that result. No, I never said that. Uh, I, never said well, that. that I, I, I said for some it would be unfinished business. Right. But had it been fifty two forty eight your way, yes. there'd have been no talk of a second referendum, and you know that. No, I don't. As well think as I, know I think that. I think that. You've been a very effective campaigner, Nigel. You've been, uh, unfortunately, you don't always have views that I agree with, but you've been a very effective campaigner. But I don't think you and others would have accepted that. You'd have come back for more. There, no, but look, come on. Had it been 52-48 for Remain, uh, you know, basically that would have been accepted, would have moved on. I don't think it would have been. Of course it but, would have been. But anyway, look, the, the issue... The, you're poli the political class, the political class of which you're a part... I was. Basically thought the British people were too thick and stupid and they should vote. I don't think anyone's ever said that. I haven't said that. Um, there are all sorts of reasons why people voted the way they did. But look, I mean, the reason it was three and a half years of dispute, I think, was partly shock. But it was also partly... Yes, you were shocked. Very shocked. Yeah, how, shocked. how ordinary people I thought. think probably, probably your side was shocked as well to some degree. But there was, there was an please, issue... Please. <laughs> yes. There was an issue as to what exactly had been voted for. Because, as you know, there were a number of options at the time. To leave. Full stop. To leave. Yeah, but what did that mean? Did it stay in the single well, market? Well, what did staying in mean? Well, indeed. I mean, I um, mean let's, not, let's not rerun 2016, because it's done. Do you now accept Brexit? I think it's a fact. It's a fact. However, there are, you know, I think we should revisit elements of it. For example, the fact that if you look at the moment, there are queues outside our petrol stations. There are no queues in Northern Ireland, which is part of the single market. There's no carbon dioxide shortage in Northern Ireland, um, well, and there is over well, here. Well, 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 actually, there are also uh, plenty of shortages across much of the rest of Europe of products. Uh, lorry driver shortages across Europe as big as ours. Um, and... Maybe because we became the low-wage economy, we made HGV driving unattractive. Well, we did, yeah. I mean, very unattractive. And, I, and I, you know, I think that part of the Brexit vote was a feeling that big businesses have taken advantage of European rules and, and open borders yeah. uh, to drive down standards and drive down wages. But, Norbert, on a lighter note... On a lighter note, yes. Let's not having, revisit that. Having, you know, said that you're a modern-day Cromwellian, non-conformist, <laughs> uh, Puritan... But, I mean, do, as a last I'm not, point... I'm not in favour of banning drinking on Sunday. <laughs> not that but you've got a ban. <laughs> you are the most unlikely person, I would have thought. So, please, as a last part of this conversation, tell us about your ban. Oh, well, I mean, look, look, music was in my life before politics. It's in my life after politics. It, it's made a black-and-white world colourful for me. That's how I describe it. Yeah. And if I just think about a band like the Beatles, the amount, amount of immense joy I've got from the Beatles over my lifetime, there's a song for every occasion. I can put on a Beatles album and it cheers me up whatever I do. Yeah. It's very important to me. So I have um, three radio shows a week. Um, no politics, 
just radio shows doing music every week on my local FM station, which is fantastic. Yep. And I've had a band which has been on and off since 1997, before that, actually, 1994, before I was an MP, uh, which has just been, you know, pottering around doing stuff in pubs. I've done three albums, and actually what I found was recording music in the studio was uh, actually more interesting than, than being in a pub, because in a pub you're limited by the musicians you've got and, and everything else. In a studio you can add bits and pieces, you can say, what about an oboe here and, you know, what about a whistle there or something? You can create and the, music. And the, and the name of the band? The Reform Club. You can find it on YouTube. <laughs> Lots of good videos on well, YouTube. Norman, can I say, <laughs> can I say, much as we've often disagreed on things, we've always been civil to each other, which is how democratic exchange Indeed it should. should take place. Thank you for the beer. And that was, that was Norman Baker, my guest for today on Talking Pines. <laughs>so we reached the last part of the program and yes it's barrage the farage where you send in your questions that i do not get sight of before let's give it a go tonight john on email asks who is doing a better job of running their party johnson starmer or davy oh gosh help me help me norman what do you think i don't know well it's not johnson is it, is it? <laughs> i um, don't know um, starmer is. starmer's having a, starmer's busy dividing the labor party again so i think by default it's probably david easy a liberal democrat would say that um, <laughs> none of them are doing terribly well is the answer chris on email asks would you buy an electric car been very tempted to because there are some big tax breaks on buying electric cars and there are lots of very smug tesla drivers uh, going around at the moment. However, when we get a great big anti-cyclone over the country in February and the wind doesn't blow and we realise our massive over-reliance on wind was a lunacy we'd pursued for the last 20 years and the French decide they've had enough with submarines and fish and stop selling us the 10% of electricity that we need that comes across the channel, then I'll be very pleased to queue up for petrol and diesel because the electric cars won't work. Adam on email asks, which James Bond film is your favourite? I think it's The Man with the Golden Gun, probably because, as a youngster, it's the first time I went to the cinema to actually see. Claire on email asks, do you plan to write another book? Yes, I do, actually, Claire. Um, I'm working on some ideas at the moment on a book uh, which would be called How to Save the West, because I feel that Western civilization is under attack. There's a very ni nasty virus that we're suffering from. It keeps mutating, it keeps coming back. It's called Marxism, uh, and it shows itself in self-loathing. It shows itself in every attempt to divide us uh, in terms of race, particularly gender as well. And I think we have to fight back and beat it. I really, really do. Thank you. For all of your questions. We've just about managed to get through them all. Thank you to Norma Baker for coming in today. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Um, there'll be no more conferences to talk about until next week, of course, when we've got the Tories. And I'll see you all tomorrow.